and welcome to podcast number 19 for Help with Parkinson's. Today, our guest is Dr. Subramanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center, and I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. Dr. Sub, welcome to the show. Hi, Warren. Thanks for uh, having me again. Sure. I'd like to bring up today something we had to cut short last week. It's about the uh, appendix linked to Parkinson's. Right. And could you just give us a little perspective on this? Is this a breakthrough or a new theory that may help with new therapies? There's yeah, so, so, so it's a lot of uh, press about this and a lot of stories in the, both the Google News as well as Parkinson's News. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, press about it. Um, also at the Society for Neuroscience meeting that I just returned from uh, in San Diego, there was uh, quite a bit of press coverage and discussion regarding this uh, particular study. Um, so in a way, it's very interesting because nobody thought that the appendix would be a seat of this particular protein, alpha synuclein. And it's clever that these investigators actually went uh, and looked at the appendix. Um, it should have been intuitive to anybody because uh, after all, the appendix is part of the colon and disease of the colon is very common in Parkinson's disease. For example, constipation is uh, super duper common. And also, um, as we discussed in the previous podcast, the gastrointestinal system is um, very much involved uh, in uh, Parkinson's disease. We have people who have delayed gastric emptying, and we talked about how the vagus nerve is a conduit for alpha-synuclein to reach the brain, and so on and so forth. So given that, given this interest in uh, GI tract, the gastrointestinal tract, it should have been pretty intuitive to look at the appendix, but uh, obviously these investigators were the first to look at it. And they did discover that indeed there is alpha-synuclein inside the appendix, uh, the removed appendix. But as I mentioned in our previous podcast, um, it does not really change a whole lot of things that we knew from before in the sense that nobody's going to advocate that the appendix be removed in everybody just uh, in order for us to prevent Parkinson's disease, at least not yet, uh, because that evidence of proactively removing the appendix to prevent Parkinson's disease is still not um, made the case for. Similar to doing vagotomy, we mentioned about the vagus nerve being cut, and indeed in Denmark, the study showed that people who had the vagus nerve cut had a lower risk for Parkinson's disease, but that doesn't indicate that everybody who has a risk for Parkinson's disease should have their appendix removed or their vagus nerve cut. Um, having said that, if you are a member of a family in which you are high risk for getting Parkinson's disease, so um, you have multiple members of the family and you have a gene that is positive for Parkinson's disease in your family, and uh, we know for sure that your risk is very, very high, then perhaps some of these aggressive measures that perhaps removal of the appendix or even undergoing a vagotomy or some similar type of intervention may be something to consider. But again, um, it's somewhat premature. And even if something like that is going to happen, it's going to happen under a research protocol. And such a research protocol has not been designed yet. 
But there was discussion at the meeting about um, such intervention in high-risk populations, people who have either the alpha-synuclein mutation, and there are several families, including a fam set of family in uh, Greece who have alpha-synuclein mutation. Uh, there's a, another group of people who have the DJ1 mutation. Uh, and then much more commonly, there is this mutation called LRRK2 mutation. Um, so there was some discussion at the meeting, especially during the question and answer session, about uh, potentially having this type of very serious intervention done uh, where either you remove the appendix or undergo vagotomy uh, in such vulnerable patients. But I think these are early days. I don't think we are there yet. And as I mentioned, one more thing is important to keep in mind is that um, nobody removes the entire colon or entire small bowel or entire stomach. Uh, people remove parts of it. And it turns out that the appendix is one thing that we have removed pretty nonchalantly uh, because uh, inflammation of the appendix was dangerous and it was an emergency and we removed the appendix and it was safe to remove it. So serendipity is inside of these investigators because they did look at it and they found alpha-synuclein. Now, who is to say that uh, we don't find uh, alpha-synuclein elsewhere in the gut? So if you look at the colon or you looked at the rectum or looked at the anal sphincter, maybe we will find alpha-synuclein there as well, and maybe even more alpha-synuclein than what we found in the appendix. So uh, these were questions that came up during the discussion. Uh, people were asking all these type of questions, and um, the answers of these are not known. So uh, I think the hype is not as mm, valid as um, what the findings are. Yes, it's an important finding, but it's not something that is going to change the practice of medicine for Parkinson's disease in the immediate future. I hope I answered your question, Warren. Yeah, what I found interesting was they found alpha-synuclein in the appendix of people with Parkinson's and without Parkinson's. Right. Like we've always been led to think that the alpha-synuclein forms in the brain or is, is more related to the spinal cord of the brain. But this shows that maybe the, the uh, way to look to preventing Parkinson's may be in trying to control it in, in the uh, GI tract. Right. So uh, that's a good uh, point that you made, is that um, this study, as well as the vagotomy study, again, that's another place where you can interfere with the transport of alpha-synuclein up into the brain. Um, and these are pieces of evidence that support the idea that maybe Parkinson's first starts in the gut, and it ascends up through these nerves and goes to the brain. So, yeah, I mean... Very interesting. That must be why the lower incidence of Parkinson's were only in the patients that had appendectomies greater than 20 years in the past. Maybe you need that time for it to pull the trigger and work its way through the system. Right, right. Again, it's early days, but I think that's a very interesting thought. Yeah. Right. And um, I just had a question for you. Maybe it's just something that was on my mind. Yeah. Was, uh, let me find it here. Being that not everybody's diagnosed with Parkinson's has real Parkinson's. They have Lewy body dementia or different things, multiple system atrophy. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this 20% reduction of Parkinson's disease would be different if you screened out all the people that had non-true Parkinson's disease? Instead of 20%, maybe it would be 60%. Well, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. But so, um, 
Right. So the 20% reduction is based on the diagnosis of PD. Um, and again, um, this population that they looked at, the two uh, databases that they looked at, um, one of them, the PPMI, which is a U.S.-based uh, database, uh, supposed to be enrolling only people who are um, genuinely Parkinson's disease diagnosis. Uh, it's, a, it's a database that's supported by the Michael J. Fox Foundation, and a number of movement disorder doctors are contributing to it. So we think that it's fairly reliable, although I agree with you, the point that um, unless you pass and you undergo autopsy and confirmatory diagnosis, you still don't know. There may be a bunch of people who are misdiagnosed with other diseases that are contaminating this population. The other group, uh, which was from the European database of appendectomies, um, again, it's a fairly small um, country with a small number of people, but it could also be contaminated with uh, these uh, other Lewy body disease or other kinds of diseases. It could also be added onto it and makes it look like uh, it's more, um, numbers are smaller, but it could become more specific if it's Parkinson's disease. I think that's a valid point. Your point is well taken. And so the final version should be only autopsy proven patients who have Parkinson's disease, that's going to obviously take time. You know, we won't know that until um, many years from now. So we right. won't. So the other things at the meeting, which I wanted to just bring up uh, at the Society for Neuroscience uh, meeting in, in San Diego, uh, there were a few other items that also um, came to attention. One study, which is interesting, uh, is a study of... Um, what is called parthenogenetic stem cells. So these are cells that are uh, made from uh, the human gametes. So basically these are cells that eventually are in our body becomes into the sperm or into the ovum. And we can harvest that from uh, people when people undergo either the removal of the ovaries or removal of the testicles for whatever illness that they may have. Like, for example, sometimes a person undergoes a torsion of their testes, and if the testes uh, uh, torsion occurs, you may have to remove the uh, testicles because otherwise it becomes gangrenous and uh, the person dies. Similarly, uh, ovaries may have to be removed if the ovary twists, um, or for other reasons. If there's an ovarian cyst, they have to remove the ovary because it's too big or whatever. So anyway, these gametes, the cells that are eventually going to become ova or sperm, they can be un undergo what they call parthenogenesis. So parthenogenesis is a way in which uh, the same cell can be fused with another cell. Now you have now a fertile cell. So it's not a sperm and an ova coming together. It's just the sperm cell is merged with another cell. Now you can have parthenogenetic cells. And these parthenogenetic uh, embryonic cells these are, uh, you could say, synthetic embryos or embryo-like bodies. They're not true embryos because uh, a true embryo requires uh, a sperm and an egg to come together from two individuals. This is the same egg, egg of an individual becoming uh, an embryo-like uh, 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 body. And these cells then can be made into neurons. So they can be made into dopaminergic neurons. So this company uh, worked to generate these type of cells. 
And these cells have been tested in rats as well as in monkeys. And they have uh, shown that in both the monkey model of Parkinson's disease and in rat models of Parkinson's disease, there was some benefit. And for reasons that are not clear, they decided to use these cells um, as uh, transplants in um, Australia. And they started this trial. And I actually happened to be uh, in Australia uh, last year, not this year, but last year, 2017. Um, we went for the International Neurotransplant Meeting over there. Uh, and they had presented some of the preliminary data. But anyway, in the Society for Neuroscience meeting, they presented their preliminary data indicating that these patients actually had benefited and the safety was also pretty good. And they have done about 15 patients, if I remember right. And nobody had any uh, negative results and many of them had positive results. So that was kind of a really uh, interesting uh, finding. The other interesting finding also related to stem cells is came from Japan. And this, again, was a new story that broke um, as part of a clinical trial that they were doing. Um, and they have actually taken pluripotent stem cells. So these are um, cells taken from the patient's skin, uh, fibroblasts. They take a small skin biopsy, and from the skin they grow uh, cells that are under the skin, which are called um, uh, fibroblasts. And from the um, fibroblasts, they can convert them into dopamine-producing cells. This technology is called IPS, or Inducible Pluripotent Stem Cell Technology. And um, this group, uh, head by Dr. Jun Takahashi, um, they have actually gone ahead and transplanted these cells in, uh, into the brain of uh, uh, a patient. And this was done uh, just recently. So they have enrolled their first uh, subject, which is kind of interesting. Um, and that news also came in uh, to, to the, uh, the particular uh, uh, meeting that I was in there. Uh, one last thing, um, which also I thought was kind of interesting, is that, uh, and this is also made into the news, uh, about this new technology that allows you to do ultrasound-mediated surgery in the brain. Um, this is called uh, HIFU. Uh, this is uh, using a technology where ultrasound waves are uh, presented into the brain in a specific target. Uh, we did a show about uh, deep brain stimulation um, uh, you know, a few uh, weeks ago, and we also had one of our uh, patients who underwent uh, deep brain stimulation do a program with uh, uh, Warren. And, uh, there was a complete discussion of all the different uh, things that happened. Well, um, some people cannot undergo deep brain stimulation due to a variety of reasons. Either they are having surgical risks, uh, like, for example, bleeding disorder, or they may have um, other kinds of um, risks that prevent them from having surgery. And what uh, has been shown recently is that you can use this special kind of ultrasound uh, which is called HIFU. And HIFU is a specialized focused ultrasound device. And what they do is they do an MRI scan. And while the MRI is being done, they can actually target the ultrasound to go and make a lesion, meaning a small uh, lesion into the brain. And uh, 
This has been published recently, uh, and it came in a journal called Neurology, where they did uh, uh, ultrasound, focused ultrasound into the thalamus and uh, helped Parkinson patients. So um, this was also uh, in the news, and also at the meeting there was some uh, discussion about um, this particular piece of news that uh, focused ultrasound may be an option for some, some people. Uh, so those were kind of the highlights of the meeting. Uh, I thought it was kind of an interesting meeting. Um, there were 26,000 attendees, a very large meeting, and uh, there were many other things that were discussed. But I thought these were sort of the key uh, little things that I picked up. Um, there may be other things as well, which I will discuss in future programs, but I thought it's important to touch upon some of the key ones that I um, personally thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, but, uh, I'm going to ask Warren to, you know, to make his comments on these few things. Yeah, so in your opinion, are all three things basically the same potential of, of reaching for a cure when just the appendix sounded more, sort of more sexy on the, on the news because people could relate to it? Right, right, right. I mean, um, the appendix story kind of uh, picked up because, um, again, similar to the vagotomy story, uh, this may be something that is more reachable for people. They can, they can relate to the appendix. Right. We also know that the appendix it can be safely removed. People have heard about appendectomy, and we know that it can be removed safely without any negativity. Right. So I think it picks up right away. People can relate to it. Right. As, opposed, as opposed to when we talk about uh, stem cells and so on and so forth, it's right. more difficult for people to relate to it. So now, I think, now, now, is that stem cells from the uh, from the purse from the patient or from the uh, uh, from other patients? Uh, the uh, mesenchymal stem cells, the stem cells that the Australian group um, injected into uh, the brain, they were allogenic, meaning they were given get got, they received those from uh, parthenogenetic cells from other people. Obviously, they didn't take it from the person's ovary or the Parkinson patient's ovary or um, for from the uh, Parkinson's patient's testicles, but it came from um, other people. So they're allogenic. They're human to human. Um, so it was safe and they didn't have to use a lot of immunosuppression. They did use a little bit light amount of immunosuppression, but that was not, uh, not, uh, not a big problem. But it, it worked anyway. Uh, or at least the preliminary results worked anyway. Um, so that's very interesting that uh, they got that report. Um, the IPSC, inducible pluripotent stem cells, the one that uh, the Japanese are doing, uh, they used um, allogenic, meaning they, they took it from autographs. So the patient's own cells were taken, and those cells were then changed and transplanted in the brain. So um, that's even more interesting because you can take your own cells and then convert it into IPSC. But again, that also is a problem because each individual, if you have to change it, um, that takes a lot of work for making each person's cell into dopaminergic cells and then making sure it's safe and so on and so forth. Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a big undertaking, but of course, again, the Japanese have pioneered a lot of interesting ways of doing things and they are now doing it. So. Right. 
Is the ultrasound the same device that you'd go into a hospital to get an organ checked out or when you want to check on a baby? Or is no, it- it's a much, much higher power ultrasound. It has to be done very specifically. So what they do is they actually put the patient into the, into the um, uh, MRI scanner and while, singing in the, uh, while uh, uh, sitting in the MRI scanner, they take a picture of your brain. And then the ultrasound at treatment is actually done while the person is in the MR scanner. And uh, that allows us to see what the ultrasound is doing. And this is a very highly specialized ultrasound. So that's why it's called HIFU. It's a very high energy focused ultrasound. And uh, by doing this, we actually create a little bit of a lesion, like a, a hole in the brain, um, similar to what we would do if you are to put in some heat or um, high amount of cold. So heat and cold can also produce lesions in the brain, but this is using ultrasound. And that's actually um, turned out to be quite an interesting, um, quite an interesting way to... Uh, help people and especially people who cannot undergo open surgery where they can't have a deep brain stimulation or something like that. So could you think of it like a a laser? Yes. It's exactly like a laser. Okay. Uh, Laser doesn't go through bone and skull, but ultrasound does go through bone and skull. So, yeah. I got you. So you can, you could affect the tissue underneath the bone without cutting it open. Exactly. Exactly. Laser. Yeah. Interesting. So, so we try to keep this, the show not, and the correct information, not not just what's a fad at the time. So we could say that all three things are are going to be studied, and there's not this doesn't change the pattern for what people are researching for um, Parkinson's disease. Is that is that correct? I agree. I agree. So I mean, these are all very interesting stories. They are very exciting for scientific basis, but it doesn't change anything that you do on a day to day basis. So after hearing the story, people should not be saying, okay, I want to go and get my appendix, appendectomy done or my vagus nerve cut. That should not be the message here. And obviously there are charlatans out there, whether it's in this country or in other neighboring countries or even Europe that might say, oh, yeah, well, we can just take the appendix out for you. Um, if you don't want to fall into the trap of undergoing unnecessary procedures with the hope, false hope that it might somehow change your Parkinson's disease. That should not be happening. Um, as Warren said, our aim of doing this podcast is to just be, keep bringing everybody uh, into sh- in, in, in the field to understand what's going on, but it's not something that we would advertise as immediate change in therapy. Similarly, the stem cell uh, treatment, whether it's parthenogenetic cells or whether it is the iPSC cells, uh, these are stories where you know, therapies are uh, being tested. And if they indeed become successful in the future, um, it, it's a great boon for our patients and it will really make a huge difference. However, at this point, these are all research studies and they're just uh, preliminary evidence of success. And we hope that we do more better studies and uh, move on to the next level. The last story we talked about, the ultrasound, uh, that's already therapy available. It's not available everywhere, but it's available in the University of Maryland nearby here, and it's also available in uh, uh, Virginia, University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Um, they, they have these protocols, uh, so patients who are interested who want to go enroll in these studies can go and get enrolled there. But again, um, it's still research, 
it still needs uh, further refinement uh, before final FDA approval that can go across for all patients. Uh, but um, I think Warren makes a great point uh, that we should keep this uh, as a way for us to make progress rather than jump in and say, we want to do this right now. And also, but we are closer than we were 10 years ago. Could you agree to that? Absolutely. I think all these developments, I think I remember the days when I started practicing medicine, we only had like three medicines altogether for treating uh, Parkinson's disease. Now we have over two dozen different medicines. We have, you know, surgeries, whether it's deep brain stimulation or focused ultrasound or stem cell therapies, they're all coming um, up to speed. And uh, we also have Duopa pump and apomorphin injections. So uh, lots and lots of new treatments that have become available. So I think our armamentarium to treat Parkinson's has really kind of expanded quite a bit. Good. Well, that's, that's good for today. You have any other things to say, Dr. Sue? I think that's a good uh, little half hour that we covered. Uh, thank you again uh, for asking me to do this, and I'll see you in the next show. Sure. Have a good day. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye.